Welcome to the Remnant by Reclaim 611 podcast. I'm Paula. And I'm Carrie. And today we have another special guest. Our special guest today is Mr. Bill Bernstein. He is the Deputy Director of Mosaic Family Services, and it is an agency serving those who have suffered human rights abuses, such as human trafficking and domestic violence, as well as the refugee community. He founded the Multicultural Family Violence Intervention Program at the agency in 1997 and the Services for Trafficked Persons Program in 2001, and has served as chair of the Metroplex Refugee Network and the North Texas Immigration Coalition. He started the legal services and the counseling programs at Mosaic. Bill directs the program at Mosaic that has served survivors of human trafficking since 2001. Mosaic has worked with over 700 trafficked persons, male and female, adults and minors, foreign-born and domestic, and victims of both labor and sex trafficking. The agency provides case management, legal services, counseling, and housing. Bill is a founding member of the North Texas Anti-Trafficking Team, consisting of federal and local law enforcement, prosecutors, and social service providers. Bill also served as co-chair of the Freedom Network USA, a national coalition of agencies providing services to trafficked persons for seven years. And in 2017, he did a TED Talk on human trafficking. So we want to say welcome to Bill. We are so happy to have you on our um, podcast today. And so like we normally do, Carrie <laughs> usually has a story on how she met our guest. So Carrie, can you give us a little story about Bill? I can. I actually had the privilege of meeting Bill at one of the North Texas coalitions. Um, it was probably the first time I got to know Bill and Mosaic um, hosts a lot of those meetings. And at the time um, they asked Reclaim to come just share what we were doing. We were like, brand new, like very, very green. And they were so kind to let us just come in and just share what we were doing um, as we just got started. And then I've had the privilege to travel a little bit with Bill and do presentations and co-present and I've heard him speak many, many times. Um, and so I'm just so excited with his wealth of knowledge as a bio depicts right. <laughs> about human trafficking and working with victims for so long and just being such an advocate in this space. So we're really excited to have you, Bill. Well, uh, thanks very much uh, for having me, uh, Carrie and Paula. And uh, I think after that introduction, uh, that sounded pretty good. I think I'm done. Okay. Because, <laughs> I, don't I don't know I can look any better after that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's mainly, it, I, I think my, my, uh, kudos or my uh, acknowledgements that you give basically just come from my having been around a long time and done this stuff for, for a while. Uh, so today, obviously, our topic is going to be about the labor aspect of human trafficking. Uh, really, we at, at Mosaic Family Services, we started doing this work in 2001, and I'll talk about the case that, that got us involved at the time. And, and we've come to view trafficking as trafficking, whatever type of trafficking it is, whether it's sex and labor, whether it involves women or men, uh, whether it's people who are American or foreign born, uh, it, it's about coercion and control of another person. And, and if those aspects of human trafficking are there, then we view it as trafficking. Uh, and for, for those who don't know about the history of the trafficking legislation in the United States, in 2000, the what is now known as the Trafficking Victims Protection Act was passed into law. and. The title itself gives you a pretty good idea of the goal of the of the law. It's the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So, although obviously the goal is to stop people from doing the work and, and doing the trafficking and arresting the perpetrators, it's a victim-centered law. And so that brings agencies like ours into perspective because we're the ones that are serving people who have been trafficked, all the trafficked persons over the years. Uh, we've served several hundred trafficked persons over the years of all different types, like I, of, of the different types I mentioned before. And the, the majority of the cases we've handled will involve sex trafficking, but we've handled a lot of labor trafficking also. Some of our early cases were labor trafficking. And so that's what the discussion here today is going to be about. Uh, it, again, if, you, if you're not aware of the definitions that have been set forth in the law, to give you sort of the simplified, quick version, human trafficking is about recruiting, harboring, uh, moving or obtaining, of course, a person 
through force, fraud, or coercion for purposes of involuntary servitude, debt bondage, slavery, or commercial sex act. Again, that that coercion and control are the bottom line of what's involved. And people have been, you know, trafficked for, for agricultural work, for domestic labor, for restaurant work, pretty much any type of, of work you can think of, people have been involved in construction and so on. Uh, recently, we've seen more cases of domestic servitude in, in recent years. I know that nationally, a lot of those have been seen also. Uh, and one of our early cases involved, uh, in fact, when I said one of our early cases, we worked with one of the survivors of this case. In fact, this case was something that happened before the legislation was passed. And I'm going to try to show you a quick, if I can do a screenshot here. So uh, these boys were singing in a choir in, the, in an African nation, Zambia. Uh, they, they were very good singers. Uh, there was a man, uh, an American man who lived or who had what he, he described himself as having a ministry north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, not too far from Sherman. And he had traveled to Zambia. He heard these boys singing. He thought, uh, you know, they, they really sounded great. So he'd like to bring them to America. So he made them some good offers. He said, look, if you come to America, uh, we can, you can really earn money from your singing and you can send money back home to help your village. Uh, I was trying to show, oh, there we go. So these are some photos of the village. So you can see that obviously any help that could be, that could come to their village would have meant a great deal. Uh, this is given Kachepa. He's the boy that we ended up working with who came to us after all this work happened. So I'm going to go back to uh, the basic thing here. When they got here, all the things that they had been promised didn't really materialize. They were singing and, and really traveling around singing in a lot of different churches. Uh, and then the, uh, the gentleman who brought them here was making recordings of their singing and selling the recordings whenever they went to these uh, places to sing. Uh, instead of the proceeds from that going home to their village to help the families to help, you know, what they thought was that medical clinics were going to be set up, schools were going to be established, it would really change that village tremendously. That didn't happen. What happened was that the guy kept all the profits and they were basically sleeping in double wide trailers, often two to a bunk. Uh, if they were sick and couldn't sing, uh, they wouldn't be fed. If they objected to anything, the, the water, electricity would be cut off in their, in their trailer. Uh, the, the conditions were pretty horrid. And uh, eventually, one of the churches they sang, they were approached by some of the parishioners there who went up and asked them, are you kids okay? You know, is, is, how is everything? And so they started telling these people what was happening. And uh, the, the people that uh, they, spoke, they spoke to went to authorities and uh, talked about what was happening here. And so... Over a long time, the uh, thing was investigated. Authorities did a raid, took these kids out of the situation. Some of them went home to Zambia. Some of them stayed here. Uh, the ones that stayed here, this one kid, given Kachepa, uh, the, the adoptive family who took him in approached us and you know to help work with him. And, and actually, another agency did the work and, and, and got his uh, legal permission to stay. Uh, because under the Traffic Victims Protection Act that was passed in America, uh, it, it's, it is a victim-centered law, as I said, and someone who is here can apply for approval to remain in the country because they were treated in such a horrific way under that law. And so uh, the ones that stayed here applied for and were granted the visa, which allows people to stay. And that's, that, that's called a T visa. It's convenient to remember that T doesn't really stand for trafficking, though. It just happens that uh, the, the last type of visa that had been granted was an S visa, visa and the letter after S happens to be T. <laughs> and so they got visas and uh, they got T visas. To, to get a T visa is not the easiest thing in the world. So someone has to prove that they are present, a couple of things, present on account of human trafficking. They have to show willingness to cooperate with law enforcement. And there has to be some will, genuine well-founded fear of what might happen to them if they return to the country that they came from. Now, that well-founded fear can be based on a lot of different things. For example, uh, the, the government has been pretty good about interpreting that well-founded fear. So if people, if, for example, 
uh, if they were able to remain in America, uh, they'd be able to, for example, sue the people who had treated them so badly. Whereas if they returned, they wouldn't be able to do that. So that itself is a justification under the law, under the interpretation of the law for them to be able to change. Uh, what, what I'm going to talk about is a lot of different cases. They're going to give you an example of what happens in labor trafficking, because the reality is it happens everywhere in the country. It happens, as I said earlier, in any type of labor you can imagine. It's happening you know, right under our noses. The, the type of domestic servitude we've seen has happened very close to us. Uh, we wouldn't be aware of these things happening uh, unless somehow we were tuned into it or just some unusual circumstance caused us to be aware of it. Uh, an example of that is there was a man who came to America legally as a refugee many years ago. This is one of the first cases we were involved in. He came to Boston. Uh, this was a gentleman who was mentally challenged. So he had the IQ of probably a 10 or a 12 year old. Uh, he was brought from, uh, was transported from uh, Boston to Dallas where somebody took control. Basically someone else bought him. And so, uh, you know, I apologize for the dog barking. I think there's no way I'm going to be able to stop that. Uh, anyway, he was brought to Dallas. Somebody else then took control of the guy, and he was he was forced to to uh, collect glass and newspaper for recycling that could then be sold. So he'd bring in a few dollars a day to the people that were controlling him. And if he didn't bring in the required amount, he would be treated pretty badly. I mean. Uh, and, and anyway, eventually, uh, you know, without going into the details of how he was treated, treated, he eventually ran away. And somebody saw him sleeping out on the grass median in between, you know, in a large street where there was a dividing median in the street. He was sleeping out there. They called the police. When the police came, he told them he was in a lot of pain. They took him to Parkland. Uh, nobody really knew what trafficking was at that time. But the, uh, the people at Parkland that, that saw him originally called Mosaic because they knew that we work with people from other countries. And Mosaic, the core of our services is consists of case managers who speak over 25 different languages. So with our human trafficking program, with our family violence program, with our refugee program, we are able to communicate with people, people who are maybe uncomfortable, maybe uh, the whole cultural divide is there where they don't understand American culture, they don't know the language very well. When they meet someone who speaks their own language, someone, and even if they meet someone from a neighboring country, for example, suppose somebody's from Cambodia and uh, maybe they meet one of our case managers who's from Thailand, uh, they'll feel that connection to that person. Even though they don't speak the same language, they, they're from a country where they understand each other's cultures and the people tend to be a little more open and speak much more freely. So these case managers form the core of what we do they are then able to refer people for services within our agency. We operate a shelter for survivors of family violence, as well as people that have been trafficked. We have legal services and we have counseling services. So we're very fortunate that we're able to be as comprehensive as possible so that people don't have to go to other agencies, don't have to, to talk to people who maybe uh, don't understand the culture, maybe the, the they don't. They they, uh, they feel uncomfortable talking to someone else who they think doesn't understand them. Cultural differences are really challenging for people who have gone through a lot of post-traumatic stress, as trafficked people might have. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. So, because we have these core services and people speak all these different languages, again back to the story, the people from Parkland called us. We were then able to work with this client. Uh, it just so happened that one of our case managers were from a nearby country. Uh, she was able to work with him. Uh, the, the end result was really very, uh, knock on wood, a favorable result for this man. He's now resettled into a place that deals with people who have these developmental challenges. And uh, he's, he's a pretty happy guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the person who was his case manager ended up being the director of our family violence program. And she still goes to visit him. He doesn't need our services anymore. But every few months she goes just to pay him a visit uh, and, and she can really see how happy he is and, and how well he's doing. So it's seeing results like that, that that enable people to carry on doing this work because it's it's very difficult to uncover people that have been trafficked for a lot of reasons. And so being able to uncover somebody, being able to provide services to them uh, does just an awful lot when we uh, when, when we uh, when we see that end result. Uh, 
some of the challenges I'll talk about of people being really unable to report or to reach out for help are cultural barrier, as I mentioned. So people are, are used to speaking their own language. When, when they're being trafficked, <clears throat> they're surrounded by people who speak their own language in their and generally they're in a certain place. Excuse me. They're in a certain area with people that speak their language, maybe eating their, their own food. And uh, so, so trying to explain to another culture of what's going on is really difficult. They, they uh, often have been told that their family at home will be harmed if anything happens. And so they're very afraid about talking to people because their family might, at home might be, uh, might be challenged, might be damaged, might be hurt. Whether or not that's true, nobody knows at the moment. So for example, of all the cases we've seen, there's very few where there was actually, and there have been cases where there was legitimate threat to their family back home, but there are other cases where that's just a bluff. But you know, if you're the person being trafficked and you're told that your family back home might be hurt, you believe that threat. You're very afraid of what could happen. So you're, you're not gonna wanna get them in danger. Another issue is just basic post-traumatic stress. When someone is being controlled by someone else, uh, the actual structure of the brain changes. We, you know, studies have really proven this over the years. Uh, we, we all have heard about the fight or flight syndrome. When someone uh, is, is threatening you, the tendency is either you run away or you fight back. And if you're in a situation where that's not an option, you, you can't run away, you can't fight back for many different reasons, the cognitive part, the reasoning part of your brain just starts shutting down and, and you just, you're in it to survive. You want to eat and you want to sleep. And if that being the case, your ability to talk to someone else about what happened is really challenged. In addition to all these other situations, there are all these other dynamics that affect the person. Also fear of authority is there in many countries. And so they may not trust authority the same way we would trust authority in America. So these are some of the challenges to somebody reaching out, reporting what's happening to them. Uh, I'm, I think I, I'm going to talk about several other cases that are that are really interesting in, in what we've uncovered. Uh, I, I know that that uh, the, the, our hosts that are listening probably have some questions for me, so I'm going to tell them. Feel free to uh, jump in with questions at any time. I'll I'll jump right into another another case, uh, another example. Uh, the first case we were involved in actually. Uh, you know, even before the cases I've mentioned, uh, was a case that uh, we were contacted by the agency that was the precursor to Homeland Security. It was the Immigration and Naturalization Services. And again, they contacted us because they knew we work with people from other cultures. So uh, there, had, there, there was a case of some people from Vietnam who had been working on the island of American Samoa. That's an American territory in the South Pacific. Uh, South Pacific pretty hot, very, very humid. And uh, these people were, were working in a large factory surrounded by high walls. And they were manufacturing garments, uh, basically just sewing and putting things together. Pretty unpleasant working conditions. There was no air, very hot and humid, uh, not even allowed to take bathroom breaks except at allotted time. Uh, the, the, the factory owners got an order from, a, from an American department store chain. And that order uh, came, and so the owner, owner put the people to work even harder than what was taking place previously. And, and things were, anyway, things were bad. So uh, one, one of the people passed out, one of the ladies working in this factory. She was uh, taken to the hospital. While she was in the hospital, she wrote a note on a piece of paper. And when she was being driven back to the factory, she threw the note out the window. This is actually the reality of what happened. Somebody picked up the note, took it to the local authorities, they investigated, conducted a, an operation, and uh, freed uh, about about seventy people from this uh, from wow. this from this establishment. And uh, some of these people were taken to different countries in the U.S. while uh, this this thing was while they were pursuing the uh, perpetrator who had uh, really enslaved these individuals. And about a dozen or so were brought to Dallas. So we got the call. Can we work with these people? We had, again, we had people who spoke Vietnam on staff. They worked with these people. When the trial took place in Honolulu, a couple of the people that were in Dallas 
were a little bit better speaking English than some of the others. And so they were flown by the Department of Justice to Honolulu to speak at the trial, to testify. Now you can imagine what they faced. They're put on the witness stand. Uh, they're asked to, uh, to, to talk. The man who has controlled them for a long time is sitting right there looking at them. Uh, his name was Kilsu Lee, uh, but very bravely they opened up and talked openly about what they had been through at this place. And as a result of that, uh, Mr. Kilsu Lee was sentenced to 40 years in the federal penitentiary. Oh. And when you're in the federal penitentiary, uh, you're not going to see the light of day anytime soon. You don't get out on parole if you've served half the sentence. I mean, the, the, the earliest you would get out is a few months or a year earlier. So, uh, you know, it's very gratifying to see that. Again, back to what I said originally, our goal is to work with the people who have been trafficked. But when we see that kind of punishment for someone who's been uh, really, you know, abusing these people for over a long period of time, very gratifying to see that. Uh, uh, Bill, I have a question. Yes, yes, so go ahead. So you've done some pretty amazing things, and oftentimes people have a story, a connection, or an experience that drives their passion for certain causes. So what prompted you to become involved in this particular line of work? Really, my, my history goes back to the fact that I just feel very... I guess comfortable. Uh, I feel like it's my place working with people from other cultures. Uh, I lived overseas for a while. And so the agency where I work, Mosaic, within 10 yards of each other, there are people that not only speak many different languages, but there may be three or four different religions practiced within 10 yards of each other. I like that openness. I like that, uh, from my perspective, that's what America is. It's a country that is open to people uh, from all over. Uh, most of us learned what they said on the Statue of Liberty, and at least I learned it in school, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, yearning to breathe free. Send those, the wretched tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So that, that saying always meant something to me, and that's what America represents to me. And so I, I, it just makes me feel right to work with these people from other cultures that are in such desperate situations. Most of the people, many of the people that work at Mosaic came to America as refugees with nothing and are struggling to get by. And now they, they found work at our agency helping other people that are going through things either what similar to what they went through or worse. So that makes me feel like we're doing something that very much needs to be done. Again, that's what the country is for. Uh, slavery was supposed, we, we think of slavery as something, something that was eliminated, uh, you know, in, in the middle of the last century, uh, but that's not the reality. You know, the reality is that, and uh, I'm gonna share my screen again with something here. So this is a picture of Frederick Douglass. Uh, a lot of us have heard about Fred, Frederick Douglass who wrote about his life as a slave. Uh, Frederick Douglass wasn't working on a plantation somewhere. He wasn't chained. Frederick Douglass was owned by a man in uh, the rural area, not far outside in Maryland, not too far from Baltimore. And every day, Frederick Douglass went into Baltimore and worked and brought home the money and gave it back to the man who owned him. So I point that out because, again, you know, we, we, we fought a civil war to stop that type of slavery. But that's uh, pretty much the same thing that it has continued happen to happen when these people are being controlled and they are being enslaved. So yeah, that's that's you know one once I didn't know about human trafficking when I started working at Mosaic and I you know I just explained you know why I liked working at Mosaic and what I do there. But once we we understood what human trafficking is and started doing that work, that may you know again was just something to motivate me to continue to work for, you know, for what we believe, I guess. Did you see a significant change? I think the TVPA, the um, Protection Act, was initiated in 2000. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's been, it was passed in 2000. It's been reauthorized many times since then. Uh, it uh, gets different names over the years. It was called the Wilbur Wilberforce Act at one time. Uh, Wilbur Wilberforce was the man who uh, got Parliament in England through a lot of tricks, he got Parliament to, to outlaw slavery. 
And so, you know, he really led the way in, in a lot of this anti-slavery work. And uh, the, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, TVPA, was renamed that after him. But then it's been renamed several times over the years. It's reauthorized. And every time it's reauthorized, usually a little something goes in, which is um, a little bit more understanding to what uh, people who have been victimized by trafficking, what they've been through, and making it more possible for them uh, to survive and to get benefits in the country here. Do you feel like your awareness around the time that it was passed really changed, like just eye-opening to um, the victims that maybe you had seen that were, you didn't realize were victims at the time? We we yeah we didn't know anything about human trafficking. We I remember that that you know one person who worked at a law firm it started it was a part of a coalition and started talking about human trafficking, and uh, you know then we got this call about the case that I mentioned, the Kill Sue Lee case, that was our introduction to it. So that was when our eyes were open. Uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, literally, like every, like most other people in the country, we were barely aware mm -hmm. of the law that was passed. Mm -hmm. It's just because circumstantially, we happened to be involved in one of the early cases that our eyes were open and we knew this was going on. And that's how we saw also the human trafficking involved a lot of labor trafficking. Again, that case from American Samoa, the people working there, uh, the, 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 uh, the other group that we got the calls about that were working here, uh, you know, and then, you know, there were some other large cases that started happening and, and more and more we became aware. Uh, there was a case in outside Tulsa, Oklahoma of men that were uh, working on and welding. So these, uh, these men were from India, mostly from South India, and they were doing welding. So they, you know, they, they had decent jobs back in India. But again, they were promised good jobs if they came to America. So there was a man who owned a, uh, a, a large company making these giant pipes that petroleum products are shipped in overseas. So, you know, from the Middle East, oil is pumped into these giant pipes, which are on these huge cargo ships and is then transported to Europe and America. And the man, this, the man that owned the factory thought, you know, if I get people to do this work cheaper, I can make more money, right? I can be more competitive. That's, again, you know, <laughs> our, our economic system is competition. So it sounds, it makes sense. So through some middlemen, he brought these workers in from India. Once they got here, you know, they expected to be making a decent salary, $19, $20 an hour. Again, this was 20 years ago or more, I think maybe uh, 25 years ago. So anyway, uh, 20 years ago is probably more accurate. So anyway, uh, again, they're working in unpleasant working condition. They're working near this huge x-ray machinery that says, do not remain near this machinery more than 15 minutes at a time. But of course, they're working all day near it. Uh, somebody's delivering food to this factory. When, he, when, when this case went to trial, he was asked how many people would be fed with what you delivered. He said it was enough for about 25 people. There were 52 workers from India working there. So they get about half enough food of what, what a human being would eat. Uh, anyway, long hours. Just uh, again, uh, <coughs> this is what happens. So they're being paid, but the money that they're being paid goes back to the owner for the food and rent. Again, they're sleeping in trailers. Uh, back to the case I mentioned when I first started talking, the case of the boys from Zambia singing in the choir. Same thing. They're being paid, but the money goes back to the guy that uh, that brought him here. He's saying, "Well, this is what your all the money you earn goes back to me for rent and for food." You know, you can imagine sleeping in a trailer. Rents can be pretty high, so the guy's making money. And again, same thing. This is what happens in many of these cases. People are being paid; they don't get to keep the money. So it's a very unfortunate circumstance. But uh, you know, that's real. You know, there was a man who worked in a dry cleaner in McKinney, just north of Dallas for something like 12 years, uh, sleeping on the floor of the dry cleaner, three meals a day from Burger King. Uh, again, you know, the guy's paying him, but he's taking back the money for food and rent. Finally, this guy runs away. That's how he gets out of it. So, you know, that, that's today, that's, that's the reality of, of human trafficking. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, I've got some other good examples of, of the real challenges here, but before I do that, are there other questions? Yes. Um, with yeah. COVID-19 and everything looking different now, have you seen an increase 
in cases, whether it's sex trafficking or labor trafficking, or has it pretty much kind of stayed the same? What we've seen over the years is that because trafficking, I mean, even today when there's a lot of talk about it and much more awareness of it, uh, the, the referrals that we get, the, <clears throat> whether it's a self-referral or from someone else, those referrals tend to come in waves. So what we've seen is that in the COVID-19 situation, uh, we've seen less labor trafficking, I think, but the sex trafficking has, has continued because uh, you know, law enforcement's still aware of it. It still goes on. We still get referrals. We, I believe we've actually seen the the referrals is a little bit less these days just because of the circumstance with all that going on. Uh, there's still a lot more work that goes on in a way with the referrals that we do get because of the COVID situation. But, uh, the you know, circumstances are, are different. One thing I'll say is that every human trafficking case, circumstances are different. Every case is different than every other case. Uh, one example that, that I always like to talk about is a case that happened, uh, again, in an area that wasn't near a city. It was, it was a little bit uh, away from the city. Uh, people working in a motel. <clears throat> and it was a well-known motel chain. And these people working there had good jobs. So one was the front desk clerk. Uh, you know, one was working in a restaurant. Another one was, was doing some cleaning work. There were several people working there. Ladies all came from the Philippines. Uh, again, so clearly labor trafficking. Uh, one day, a, a, a federal officer working for uh, immigration enforcement in, in the area where this was taking place got a call from the owner of the motel where these people worked. And he said, and he, the man calls <coughs> immigration enforcement and says, I have some people uh, that, that are from another country that are working for me and they're here without their papers. So I think, you know, you need to, to come and, and I'm sure once you're aware of that, you'll take them back, deport them to the country they came from. Uh, so uh, the, the immigration agent hangs up the phone and starts thinking about it. And he thinks there's something wrong with this picture. When has the owner of a business ever called enforcement agencies and said, please get rid of my workers that I'm paying cheap wages to? What's happening here? Does that ever happen? Uh, and, and by the way, the reason the owner called immigration enforcement is because the people were starting to complain about some, some of the stuff that was going on. Anyway, so the, the agent starts investigating. And, and this, this is a great example. I believe it's one of the best examples because it really shows just how difficult it is to uncover these things. I talked earlier about why these things, why, why people don't self-report, why they, why they don't make an outcry. So... Here's what's happened, even when somebody becomes aware of it, and it, it just takes a really uh, determined and, and uh, just dedicated enforcement officer to uncover this case. So he starts investigating this because he's very suspicious. The owner calls him, take away my people that work for me. <laughs> Somebody doesn't look right. So he investigates. Uh, what, what he finds out is that the people who, who are working there are being paid a regular wage, $1,500 a month. Again, this was several years ago. This was a decent wage for somebody doing this work in this area. Uh, well, again, if any of us see that, it, uh, you know, what's happened? Well, they're getting paid. Uh, is it, can it really be trafficking? Like a lot of these other cases, though, they're depositing the money into their bank account when they get the check. The next day, they're writing a check back to the owners of the motel for the same amount of money. So they keep nothing. Uh they're working long shifts. Uh, they're not allowed to talk about anything. You know, the, the list just goes on and on the more you investigate. So the case ends up, you know, eventually they bring it to trial and they uncover some information. So it's, it's uh, you know, ends up being an interesting case and a case that shows really what we're facing and trying to uncover this. Uh, you know, se sex trafficking is difficult enough to uncover, but law enforcement officers might come across it. You know, they, they see things like that during the normal course of their work. We don't see labor trafficking unless somebody says something. How do how are we aware of people that are being kept somewhere and, and they don't talk about it? So you can imagine how difficult it is to uncover something like this. Well, that leads I'll, me I'll to a question. pause again in case you have other things. Well, what you're saying really leads me to um, a question I have for you just for our listeners is if you're the general public and um, you're concerned about labor trafficking um, just from where 
you know, just living in society, the places we go, the things that we see, what would, what would you recommend things that you're looking for that would be red flags? And then what would you tell the general person to do if they suspected labor trafficking? Would it be a number to call or what, what would you suggest to do? You, you know, the most difficult thing is again, when covering these cases. So <clears throat> the, the best advice that we can, first of all, of course, you don't want to get involved. You don't want to put yourself in danger. So if you're in a situation where you can speak to someone, uh, if, 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 you know, if you think they look uneasy, if, if, you know, it's a gut feeling, right? If you see somebody and you think something's not right here. And, and I'll give another example of that. Uh, I was doing a presentation for people in nursing school. Uh, you can identify with this, Gary. So uh, <laughs> one, one of the people, uh, it was interesting. So there's one lady in the class who actually had a PhD in neuropsychology, but she went back to school for a degree in nursing because she wanted to be a nurse. And at the, uh, you know, after I'd spoken, she told the story. She said, you know, the place where I go to do my nails is a woman from another country who's the one who always does my nails. So I got to know her. So this is an example of where she got to know the person and could speak a little bit openly about it. So she started speaking to her and, and asking her how she was doing, what her situation was. And, and during that conversation, when she was pressing, uh, the woman doing the nail said, well, he, yeah, here, so yeah, I came to this country to, to do this work for this uh, guy who owns the company here. And, and uh, you see that guy in the corner, he owns me. Now, I don't wanna say that was a dead giveaway, but he owns me is a pretty fair indication. <laughs> right. So, uh, in, you know, in this case, of course, <clears throat> she was saying it because we were doing a presentation. You know, we have a hotline number that you can call uh, you can call, you know, you can always call enforcement 911. Uh, the, the, the people, if you call enforcement, may not really know uh, about human trafficking or the people who answer the call. Right. So, you know, you might emphasize that. We always tell people to give us a call. We have a 24 hour hotline at our shelter. Uh, I'm going to give the number, and, and one of our other uh, staff people is on the phone here. On, I'm sorry, on the call, and I'm going to ask him to check and make sure I'm giving the right number. I believe uh, for trafficking, the number's uh, 214-823-1911. Uh, but, but I'll give another number that, that I know is a correct number because it, it's the Family Violence Hotline. It's 214-823-4434. So anybody can call again that one, 214-823-4434, and they'll reach the shelter, and they can then start talking about the circumstances. Uh, that if somebody sees this or is aware of it, that's the way to go. Uh, I'll just tell people to be aware that that we go through a process because we, we've gone through a lot over the years with having people that self-identified and called and 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 you know sometimes that we we, we don't may not be exactly what's happening. You know they may be ulterior motives. So we like for someone to meet a case manager before they come to the shelter. So I, just good for people to be aware of that. But certainly anytime people can call us uh, and, and, you know, we'll be happy to talk to them and uh, sort of go from there. So that's, I think, the, the best way to follow. I don't Great. know if, if Noel is still on the, Noel, if you have anything to say, feel free to jump in here. Uh, he's been doing a lot of outreach and, and educating community about human trafficking for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I was going to see if he had anything else to say about this, but uh, Otherwise, I can go on, or if there's any other questions, feel free to jump in, Carrie or Apollo. Uh, yes, I know Mosaic has so many services that you all offer. Uh, for instance, client advocacy, emergency shelter, transitional housing, counseling mm -hmm. and therapy, legal services, community outreach, community education, and unaccompanied minor support. Um, it, so it. it like you said earlier, you all are like a full service organization to every part of the individual. So um, it, it does, do the services that you all provide, do they go like in a specific order or is it just based on whatever the client needs at that time? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it depends on the client, but we, we, the, the, the first thing is generally the case managers because the case managers are the ones that speak many different languages and they're the ones that are gonna coordinate. So for example, uh, many, and, and you know, one thing that we found is that the first need, 
you know, you would think of someone who's in a desperate situation, you think, well, maybe they need food or shelter or counseling or something like that. But the thing that they're most concerned about is legal services generally. So bottom line is that, that people, <clears throat> you know, want to talk to a lawyer generally. Wow. Now, that's, but, but even that, we try to do through the case manager. So we feel like that's the best way to go about it. And, and so that's, that's what we'd encourage anybody to do is talk to a case manager. <laughs> and again, that's how they're gonna be directed. If they call us, you know, that is how they will be directed. Uh, I'll, I'll, have, I'll, I'll put up another screen basically, you know, back to the question that uh, Carrie asked about what can I do uh, here? You know, again, it's the most difficult thing, but you know, I've, so I've talked about, you know, how you feel, be careful about it. Uh, the, the, here's some questions that you can ask someone, but the reality is we don't know how far this will go. Some questions are, what type of work do you do? Are you being paid? Uh, could you leave your job if you wanted to? Do you have your own documents or identification? That one comment that's indented there, we think is probably the best comment, the best question. You get paid, but do you get to keep the money? I mean, you see in every case that I talked about, the money is the issue. So people are being paid, but they don't get to keep the money. They have to pay it back for rent, pay it back for food. So that's really a key question that, that you could ask someone. Again, we want to encourage, you know, law enforcement, the first thing they'll say is talk to them because they don't want anybody to endanger themselves. So we want people to be aware, don't put yourself in danger. Uh, while I've got these slides up, I will show you a couple more slides because you remember uh, the first case I talked about were the boys in the uh, Zambian youth choir, the, the, the boys that came here and I talked about Given Kachepa, who was one that, that we uh, got to know over the years. So a couple of years ago, Given Kachepa <coughs> got his degree, his certificate in dentistry from the Baylor College of Dentistry. Uh, he is now a dentist. Uh, if you need help, he's available. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so let me. What a great story. Get back to this. Yeah, it's, it's always it's always good to end on that. You know, I've, I've got another really nice story that I'll end with, but but uh, you know we've got a couple of minutes left, so I'll save it for the end and uh, see if you if you. Uh, want to go anywhere with anything else but yeah but but back to to your question paula the general order would be for somebody to talk to a case manager and then if somebody is needs a place to stay the next step would be they'd go to our shelter and and our shelter by the way is uh is on a it's a very uh comfortable place uh when we think of shelter sometimes we tend to have a bad sort of bad paradigm in our, in our head of what we think a shelter is and uh, the place that we have is it's a very old building but it's, uh, we, we've updated it over the years. We've done a lot of work on it. Uh, well, there's a lot of space inside the building. There's a lot of grounds around the building. There's a place for kids to play. Uh, there's a little place where they can play soccer. There's another little tiny basketball court. I mean, there's, there's places where people can sit around with each other inside. And, and it's really, on the whole, I think, a pretty comfortable place. So if somebody needs that, that's where they'll go. Uh, they'll obviously be referred to one of the attorneys if they need legal help, because often that's the first thing on somebody's mind. Uh, if, if somebody has some criminal conviction against them, which has been there because of trafficking, that can be often uh, gotten around. I mean, that can sometimes be removed from their record. So there's a lot of uh, legal possibilities that, that you know we should be aware of as we go forward with all this. So you know we're fortunate that we, that we have attorneys, that we have counselors that can talk to people, and, and of course, the, the, the good thing is that the case manager that we have will be with the people every step of the way. So they will uh, go with them on interviews that they have with law enforcement, interviews they have with prosecutors, and uh, you know, step by step, they'll be there you know, doing that. Uh, yeah. That advocate so, piece is really important, exactly. especially when you have been through so much trauma. There's um, one thing that I had just noted when you were talking from earlier, and then as you're talking about legal services, you talked about the T visa. Um, and I just, just to clarify to our listeners and also um, just getting to my question, there a lot of people who are being labor trafficked and foreign nationals specifically have this intense fear of mm -hmm. law enforcement and being deported. And that's one of the things with that force, fraud and coercion, 
right, is that if you try to go to law enforcement, you try to run away, you're going to be deported, right? Because all their documentation, even if they have it, has been taken from them as a source of control. So let's say you are, you do suspect trafficking, and maybe you've established even a relationship or got to talk to somebody like that woman in the nail salon. Um, what We don't want to give people false promises, but a lot of times it they're not going to be deported, right? Like that, there's protection against that, and that is kind of part of the services that you provide at Mosaic. Is that accurate? Right. Like if you were talking to somebody, what are the protections they do have um, as foreign nationals? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you you sort of clarified that because sometimes I sort of take that for granted. You know, when I'm I'm just rolling off these statistics, right? Somebody can get a <laughs> TV. Okay. I mean, who knows what a TV says, right? Uh, but exactly so. Often people from other countries uh, are here without documentation, and often it's because uh, they, that's been taken away from them. I mean, they, they may come here legally on a visa, and then the person that, that uh, technically looks on themselves as the owner of the other person that, that controls them takes away the documentation. So as an example of a case like that, we had a, uh, an exterminator come into our office one day so there's a house in the in the Dallas area that he uh, exterminated. He said, you know, most houses take me about an hour and a half to go through. This one house, the owner who's from another country, follows me around, takes me four hours. He, he He's very uh, picky about everything I do. He's complaining constantly. One day this exterminator goes to this house. Uh, when the owner's not there, he's still allowed to come in to clean. And there's a woman he's always seen standing in the background who's obviously doing cleaning or something. He asks her, are you okay? And she starts crying and she tells him her circumstance. Uh, you know, she's come there, the owner has taken her papers. Her papers are in the owner's bedroom somewhere. And uh, it's a four bedroom house, big house. Uh, she sleeps on the landing at the top of the stairs. So, you know, exactly like you, like you say, uh, so she's not documented at the moment. She, by cooperating with law enforcement, by getting services by being recognized as somebody that's present on account of trafficking, she's being a, a, a victim of human trafficking, she can then apply for this visa and get permission to remain. She she can then become a, a documented and, and a legal permanent resident and, and so on. Uh, I'm, I'm going to mention an, a, another case quickly that I want to talk about because it's also got a very nice ending. Uh, there, was a couple, there were two couples from the Philippines uh, that, that came here to visit relatives. They're met at uh, Los Angeles airport by somebody with a sign with their name on it. You know, we've all seen that at airports. So they go with this person, uh, they get driven, uh, you know, hour, hour and a half, two hours outside the city in this really remote area. Uh, and and this, this, there's like a small sort of nursing home. It's, an, it's, a, it's a home for people with Alzheimer's uh, and, you know, not a big place, maybe 12 residents. And there's one person there taking care of these people. And so the, this, this couple are given this place to stay and they're told we're working out your transport to get to Dallas. So while they're there, uh, the first day, this person who's running the place leaves. Now they have to start running the place. So somebody brings food to them, but basically they're stuck. They don't know how to call anybody. They don't know what to do. They are stuck in this place. Uh, and it's a long story. Eventually, they, they, they get taken to Dallas. They're in similar circumstances in Dallas. Uh, the wife ends up being pregnant and is in the hospital uh, to have the baby and starts researching. The wife was an attorney in her country, by the way. She starts researching uh, about what she's been through, and she uncovers some information. She gives us a call. So that's how this comes to people's attention. Uh, so it's a long story. Uh, they were very afraid for, for a long time, but finally... Uh, you know, they are then eventually granted these visas you were talking about, Gary. So they got their T visas. The wife then went back to school. She went to SMU, got a master's degree in civil jurisprudence. So she is now teaching classes in Houston. Uh, the husband has another job. So it's just, you know, very gratifying, again, to see that somebody can end up in that situation. Uh, great. I mean, when these people first came to see us, they were so dejected. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Uh, and, and it's just such a great ending for them to see they have such good lives for themselves and their family and, you know, their, the kids growing up. And uh, it's, we, we love to see that. That's, that's what keeps us going. 
Yeah, absolutely. Those are such great stories. And I've heard some of them, but I just enjoy listening to some of them again. Um, and just the different ways that um, uh, victims have come to you, whether it's a referral or literally looking up their situation online and calling you. Um, so I just appreciate you so much and specifically just bringing to light um, labor trafficking, which I love you have so much knowledge of um, and just such great examples because it really is something that um, although we talk about sex trafficking a lot more, that labor trafficking really goes unnoticed yet statistically is a lot higher than sex trafficking um, on a global level. So um, I just really appreciate your time, and I know we're kind of wrapping it up today, but um, we know that Mosaic Family Services exists here in the Metroplex, and you can go online, and if you ever need their services, they um, have so many amazing resources. And like I was telling Paula before we started, I was like, in healthcare, if I had a patient who was a victim of trafficking, um, and specifically labor trafficking was my suspicion. There's nowhere else that I would want to refer my patients um, because you guys just have services that's just nobody else does. Um, and uh, the legal services specifically are just um, really amazing um, at your facility, your organization. So we really love you. Well, you know, th thanks for saying all that again. It's, it's, you know, the, the great thing from my personal perspective is there's a lot of good people doing that work. I mean, there's a lot, you know, whereas I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, yeah, I've been around a long time, but but it's really all the all the you know, case managers that are that are treating people, the, the attorneys, the counselors, the people that work. And by the way, you, you know, you asked about what's happening during COVID. I think Paul asked about what's happening during COVID. Uh, you can imagine operating a shelter 24 hours a day during COVID is pretty challenging. <laughs> oh, so the staff, at the, everybody else can be practicing social distancing and everything else. At the yeah. shelter, boy, uh, you know, these people are still working and they're 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people are working at the shelter. So kudos to them. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, you know, Noel Mendoza that you didn't get to meet here, but, but been listening in uh, with the outreach work that he's been doing has been phenomenal. So, so again, you know, Thanks to Reclaim 611. Thanks to both of you for having us. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's great to see more awareness about human trafficking going out and, and people really becoming aware that this is a reality happening in our community. Yes. Yep. Thank you for your time, Bill. Well, guys, yeah, we thank you all for tuning in to the podcast. I'm Paula. And I'm Carrie. And if you have any questions, you can feel free to email us at www. Oh, actually, that would support our reclaim611.org. Sorry, guys. <laughs> or you can check out our website at www.reclaim611.org. And, Bill, could you please give us the website for Mosaic? Sure. It's Mosaic Services. So it's www.mosaicservices, all one word, dot org. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, guys. And until next time, we'll talk see to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right.